Friends, will you pray with me again? Let's pray. Father God, we confess that it is so easy to go through our weeks and lose sight of you. It's easy to go through a day, through a morning, even through an hour and lose sight of you. Sitting here in church, we can let our minds wander to other things. Forgive us, Lord. We pray now that as we consider your word, you would open our eyes to its wonders. Help us to see you and what you intend for us even as Isaiah beheld you. God, we need you to change us. We need you to give us sight, even as Jesus gave sight so many years ago. Give us sight today. Give us hearing today. Make us alive today. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I should have mentioned to you a few moments ago that I'm talking about nine marks. We release a journal, an electronic journal, every uh, four times a year. And in this one being released tomorrow, the sermon that your pastor, Mike, gave is going to be featured. Uh, I asked him to send me that sermon. He sent it to me, the one he gave on elders as shepherds, and he went through scripture. Did you guys remember that? If you weren't here, it's actually online now. But the email goes out tomorrow, ninemarks.org. Go there now and read the sermon that he gave saying what a pastor does, what an elder is. We thought it was so good we wanted to feature it for other pastors to look at and say, hey, here's how you teach your people what a pastor is. So we were very encouraged to be able to use Mike's sermon for that. Thank you, brother, for your work on it. Well, a number of years ago, I was watching a Superman movie and I was so taken by the figure of Superman, I confess that I thought to myself, I kind of hope God is like that. You know, uh, really nice, but with amazing powers. He's always there to help you out, at least if he can get there on time. Very much a gentleman. He won't impose himself on other people's wills. And he's all about truth and justice and all of that stuff. What do you think God is like? Do you think maybe he's a little bit like Superman? Or do you think he's like Morgan Freeman? I saw another movie a few years ago in which Morgan Freeman was playing the part of God. You know, an older man, gentle. He's got a fatherly chuckle. It's real comfortable. What do you think God is like? I I think we all have slightly different ideas about what God is like, but one way or another, we all tend to think that God is like us. Now, we know he's stronger than us. We know he's more powerful. We know he is morally superior. He He is better, but we all tend to think naturally that God shares our views of justice and morality, our views on love and sex, our politics and passions, our ideas of an evening well spent or a life worth living. We basically think God is like us, like me. At least that's what we've been thinking ever since the serpent came into the garden and convinced Adam and Eve that you can be like 
God. Well, if I'm like him, he's like me. But is God really like you? Is God really like me? What if I told you that God is unspeakably, unimaginably, wonderfully holy? And being the one and true and only holy one, he is not like us. Well, that's what Isaiah discovers in chapter 6, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Turn to chapter 6 of Isaiah, where Isaiah and we encounter a God who is very much above us and not like us in every way. Turn there. As you're doing so, I'll just give you a bit of background. The, the, the chapter is set in the year that King Uzziah dies. Uzziah had been a comparatively good king, but his final years were marked by the consequences of his pride. And the people, too, under Uzziah, their lives were marked by pride. They professed religion with their mouths, but their hearts remained proud. Let's read verse 1, just the first half of the chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. The Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Well, friends, I want to make three basic simple points from the passage this morning. Point number one, God is holy. God is holy. He reveals a number of things about himself, however, in our passage. Not just that he's holy. God reveals that he is living. King Uzziah died, but God has not. And how many kings and princes and presidents and prime ministers have come and gone since Uzziah, and yet God is still king, even now, even today. After the next election cycle and the one after that, God will be living. Who do you think will be in the White House in 10,000 years? A million years. Republican, Democrat? Probably not, but God will still rule. 
God will still be king even then. God reveals about himself that he sovereignly rules. He is seated on a throne. It, it, it says here he's, he's king of the world, of armies, of nations. He doesn't need to fight for his rule. He's seated. He is at rest. And again, from one cycle, election cycle to the next, from one news cycle to the next, from one day to the next, in your life and mine, God rules perfectly, unthreatened. God reveals in this passage that he is majestic. You notice there in verses 1 and 2, he's, he's high and he's lifted up, he's exalted, and the, it says the train of his robe fills the temple. He, he's characterized by dignity and grandeur and greatness. He's not our equal. We can't just casually walk up to him and get all chummy with him. Not casually with him. He's high. He's lifted up. He's above us in every sense. Uh, God reveals in this passage that he is revered and worthy of reverence. You you see the word seraphs there, seraphim in the plural. Uh, Literally translated, that means fiery ones. These are the fiery ones, right? These magnificent and mighty and sinless and glorious creatures hovering about his throne, just these almost balls of fire. And, and yet, these fiery ones have to cover their eyes before the fire of his holiness. What must he be like if fire has to cover its eyes before him? Can't imagine. Is it possible, friends, that there is a being so majestic, so glorious, so beautiful, that you could spend an eternity beholding this one, worshiping? Is that that conceivable in your mind? You would never tire of being before this one's throne. What must he be like? Well, God reveals all of these things about himself in this chapter, but most and f- first and foremost, he reveals that he is holy. Uh, you, if, if you look at the structure of verses 1 to 5, it puts the climax right in the middle in verse 3 with the seraphim's words of praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Right here, the writer wants us to know in verse 3 is the, the climax of revelation of what's happening in this passage. God is holy. Sometimes Hebrew writers would say things twice to give it emphasis. So they might say pit, pit. They talk about a deep pit. Or as you're reading through the text, it'll say gold, gold to refer to especially pure gold. Well, here, the writer sort of pulls out all the stops and says it three times. Almost in triangular Uh, Trinitarian fashion, it's almost like no matter where you're standing, looking at this one, he's holy. God is utterly, completely, and wholly holy. His goodness is holy. His mercy is holy. His love is holy. His justice and judgment are holy. His character and being are holy. God's holiness characterizes everything about God. God never has an unholy thought. 
God never has an unholy ambition or desire. God never does an unholy thing, never acts in an unholy fashion. He he never laughs at an unholy joke. Though I trust that the creator of laughter laughs. It's a holy laughter. God's interactions within the three persons of the Trinity are utterly holy. God's interactions with human beings are utterly holy. God's interactions with the devil are utterly holy. God's plans for the nations, the rise and the fall of kings, are holy. God's determination of salvation and damnation is utterly holy. It's no good to say that you love God, but that you don't love his holiness because to speak of the holiness of God is to speak in some sense of the very godness of God. Of whatever it is that makes divinity divine. You might as well say that you love dogs, but that you don't love those things which make dogs dogs, like fur, four legs, wagging tail, slobbering tongues. I like dogs, but I don't like those things. You don't like dogs. To say, I love God, but I don't love his holiness. It's not really God then that you love. It's something else. Friend, do you? Do you love the holiness of God? Is the holiness of God at the center of your affections for God? And if not, what is it that you're loving? Okay, what is the holiness of God then? What, what, what do we make of it? Well, if you were here when I preached on Leviticus 10, you recall that we say something is holy. Well, first, when we say it's set apart from sin... But it's not enough just to say that something is set apart from sin. We also have to say what is it set apart to. What is it consecrated to? And something is holy when it's set apart from sin and consecrated to God and God's own glory. So a holy book or a holy people or a holy nation are set apart is a book, people, nation set apart from sin and consecrated to, dedicated to God and God's own glory. Uh, Look at verse 3 where we see this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What are the fiery ones telling us? The fiery ones are telling us that from eternity's standpoint, from God's standpoint, the whole earth is to be dedicated to, consecrated to, the proclamation of the glory of God, the praise of God. God is holy in that God is utterly dedicated to, consecrated to the proclamation and the pleasure of his own glory. So again, let me ask, what do you think of the holiness of God? Is it at the center of your affections for God? 
The fact that he's utterly dedicated and wants nothing more to be and to have all creation be consecrated to his praise and glory. Does that make you say, yes, that's right. That's what I want. Problem, of course, is that we want God to be like us. Whether Superman or Morgan Freeman or what have you. And if we want him to be like us, well, then we can't really desire his holiness, can we? In the proclamation and the celebration of his own glory. I think, I think movie actor Brad Pitt, explaining why he abandoned the Christianity of his youth, speaks for many of us when he said, I don't understand the idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to me to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. I wonder if Pitt's words resonate with you at all. The problem, of course, is, is, is Pitt places God and humanity in equivalent moral positions as if we're both worthy and entitled to the same things and have the same standing. Becoming a Christian, friend, means you've realized that you are a creature and that God is a creator. And that being entirely dependent on him, you you have no glory, no righteousness, Nothing on your own to commend you, to bring to him, but instead you are utterly dependent on the righteousness and the glory that he gives and invites you to. That's the beginning of Christianity. It's the end of saying, I deserve glory. And it's the beginning of, he deserves glory. And so I'm going to hold on to him and hold on to all that he has. Phil Riken has written, a love for God's holiness is one of the best indicators of true Christianity. If we love God for his holiness, it shows that we love him for who he is in himself rather than for what he does for us. And so the theologian A.W. Tozer sounds very different from Brad Pitt and very much like a true Christian when he writes in his books uh, his book on God's holiness I tell you this I want God to be what God is the impeccably holy unapproachable holy thing the all holy one I want him to be and remain the holy I want his heaven to be holy and his throne to be holy. I don't want him to change or modify his requirements. Even if it shuts me out, I want something holy left in the universe. So again, friends, I ask, what do you think of the holiness of God? I don't think we can jump straight to a love for God's holiness. I think we have to actually go through another step first, and that brings us to point two. Point one, God is holy. Point two, we are not. We are not. Look at verses four and five again. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Why does does, uh, Isaiah here talk of unclean lips? Well, perhaps it's because he knows he's not giving praise, and his people don't give praise like, like the fiery ones do. Uh, perhaps it's it's because he, he he knows that as Jesus would one day sits what Jesus would one day say that the out of the mouth the heart speaks and the lips are revealing what's in the heart. Or or, as he will later put it in chapter twenty nine verse thirteen, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's he's speaking of hypocritical lips. He's talking to a religious people, Isaiah is, right? Like a church. But he sees hypocrisy. Whatever the explanation of it is for why he would designate, designate the lips, we know that Isaiah knows himself to be guilty, and he knows that his nation is guilty before this holy God. And the experience of standing before God, of, of beholding him... <clears throat> in all of his holiness, leaves Isaiah saying, I'm ruined. Or as the King James puts it, I'm done. I'm broken up. I'm I'm torn apart. And friends, the, the, the Bible promises us that one day you and I too will stand before this holy God and we will give an account for every single thought and deed. One day, friends, all of your invisible thoughts will become visible. Uh, Things that you've done in the dark will be brought into the light. The, The silent thoughts in your head will be played over loudspeakers. What you really worship will be made known. A pleasure, a relationship, a job habit. Uh, The fact that you serve others in church so that others make much of you, that will be made plain. It will be shown where you find your true rest. That is the place that you look for when you're feeling anxious or fearful or tired. Where do you look for for your rest? That will be made evident on this day. Your, Your likes, your dislikes, Your hatreds will be made public. What you really thought of your fellow church members, what you thought of your neighbors, what you thought of your colleagues. Your your fantasies will be placed on the table for everybody to look at on this day. Your fudging on the tax forms, the embellishments, the exaggerations, the lies. The dissatisfaction that you feel when you see someone else's car someone else's house, that, that quiet envy and, and bitterness. The embarrassment you felt when people identify you with Jesus. All this will be made plain before the one who is holy, holy, holy. Uh, friends, you and I have not sought his glory. We've not been utterly consecrated to his 
glory. We haven't worked hard all day, had long conversations into the night, scheming for the purposes of his glory. We've not strategized in our marriages or parenting or financial decisions for ways that would maximize his glory. We haven't endured trials or enjoyed successes from the perspective of adding to his glory. We haven't sacrificed ourselves for others for the sake of his glory. In other words, we have not been holy. My lips, your lips, have not been holy. My heart, your hearts, my actions, your actions have not been holy. We are an unholy people. We live among an unholy people. Would Brad Pitt, would we be so self-assured if we were to actually enter into the throne room of God and behold the fiery ones worshiping God in his glory? Would we say, that's all about ego? Or would we not, for the first times in our lives, be able, as Isaiah does in this moment, be able to see ourselves utterly and completely clearly, completely undressed? A creature standing in rebellion before his creator. Would this not be the first time that we really see what we are and what we are made of and what he is and what he is made of? I think our only response would be, whoa, lost. If God is utterly consecrated, dedicated to his own glory, holy, and if we are not entirely dedicated to his glory, unholy, there is no hope for us. We cannot survive. God will be against us. If there is some area in our lives, some thought, some action, some habit, some desire, some ambition that we're still holding on to, that is not dedicated to God's glory, it will be destroyed. It will burn up. Whatever that is, friend, that you or I are holding on to, it will not last. That is a promise. Remember this day. I promise you. Whatever it is you're holding on to will not last. Now, will you give it up? Or will you let it damn you first? And have it taken away by force, by damnation? I'm ruined, he says. I'm undone. What do you think he's talking about there? What do you think he's pointing us toward? To enter God's throne room like Isaiah, like we all will one day, is to behold a king in his righteous and his fiery splendor. It is to be undone. This is not Superman or Morgan Freeman. This is the one before whom we will fall on our faces. This is someone altogether more terrifying, more beautiful, more mighty. Gratefully, that's not the end of the chapter. Point one, God is holy. Point two, we are not. Point three, Christ will forgive. Notice what happens in verses 6 and 7. An angel takes a a coal from the altar, and the altar represents 
where sacrifices are, are, are offered for sin, and he applies this coal, this, this sacrifice, still burning, to the sinner's lips, to where he confessed his sin. And then we're, you see there in verse 7, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Because God is holy, the violation of his law, our unholiness, must be paid for. God cannot simply sweep it under the rug saying, no, don't worry about it. Damage has been done. A law has been broken. For, For God to be a just God and for God to be a good God, something must pay the price. Something must pay the penalty for that broken law. And either we will pay it so that we are ruined, as Isaiah says, or a substitute. Someone will stand in our place, will pay it. Well, who is that substitute? Who is that sacrifice? Flip to chapter 53, will you? Chapter 53, verse 5. And I want you to keep your, I'm going to read this, but then I want you to keep your finger here for a little bit. We're going to look at a couple of things here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, who is this? Well, the New Testament, places like Acts 8 and elsewhere, tell us very clearly that this is Jesus. Jesus is this sacrificial substitute. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you don't know yourself to be a Christian, know that one day your sins and my sins are going to be made plain. The things that we have been living for will be made plain. And on that day, because God is good, he will punish your sin and he will punish mine. And the Bible tells us that 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 is nothing other than eternal damnation. But on that day, if you have been found looking to Christ, putting your trust in Christ, holding on to him, saying, yes, God, you shouldn't shouldn't accept me, but I've been forgiven because of the blood of Christ, on that day you can be with God. And so, friend, today is the day I'm calling you to repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Turn to repent, turn away, turn away from your sins, hold on to Christ, his righteousness, and follow after him. And that is, that's the sacrifice that's being spoken of here. Paying the penalty that you and I deserve if we only repent and believe. Here's something else, though, that I think you'll find, all of us will find amazing. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 12, verse 41, John refers back to Isaiah 6. Not 53. Other places in the New Testament talk about the Isaiah 53 being Jesus. John, in chapter 12, points to Isaiah 6, and it says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Did you catch that? 
The Apostle John says, Isaiah said these things in Isaiah chapter 6 because he saw Jesus and spoke about his glory. In other words, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is not just the Isaiah 53 sacrifice. He is that, but he is also the Isaiah 6 God. Seated on a throne, high and lifted up, exalted with the the train of his robe filling the temple and the fiery ones surrounding him night and day saying, holy, holy, holy. Who is that? That's Jesus, says John. Sure enough, look, look at Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just just like verse 1 of our chapter. But, But who's the one who's going to be lifted up here? Well, it's the suffering servant of chapter 53. Friends, do you see what this means? This means that the one on the throne in Isaiah 6 comes down off the throne, and climbs up onto the altar and has made a sacrifice for sins. The one on the throne. And there on on the altar, look, look at Isaiah 53 verse 3. There on the altar, Jesus becomes like one from whom people hide their faces. The angels hid their faces because he was so brilliant and majestic and glorious. And yet he chose to become one from whom people hide their faces because he is so grotesque and crushed and destroyed. And he did this for hypocrites like us. Sinners like us. My Christian friend, do you ever struggle with taking the gospel for granted? Well, I'd encourage you for just a moment, consider who it is who died for you. It was the one who was there when King Uzziah died and is still living. It was the one who is seated high and is lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. It was the one who was all majestic and is all majestic and his throne is surrounded by these, these beings of fire who can't even look at him. It was the one who is holy, holy, holy and is utterly dedicated to, consecrated to the proclamation of his own glory and praise. It is the one before whom you and I are permanently undressed, permanently seen. It is this one, friends, if you are a Christian, who died in your place, who took the penalty that you deserve and that I deserve. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon this one. 
should our final response not be like Isaiah's in verse 8? Here I am. Send me. I'll tell others. I have to tell others. There's no other hope. There is no other goodness. There is no other holiness. Friends, God is not like you. He's not like me. And thank goodness, He's unimaginably better. He is mightier, fiercer, more loving, more majestic. He is holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Lord God, to behold you in your glory and your holiness is to be undone because we are a sinful people. I am sinful. We are sinful. And there is no words that we can utter that begin to compare with you and your beauty and your holiness. And there are no words that we can utter that can begin to remove the sin from us that bring your damnation. And yet we give you thanks and praise because you, Lord God, because you are loving and because you are just, came down from your throne and climbed onto the altar to be sacrificed for sins so that we can be clean, we can be forgiven. We give you thanks and praise for this. In Christ's name. Amen.